doors. For more information, go to kpfa.org. For Michelle Goldberg and Indria Devi, June 18th. And you are listening to 94.1 FM KPFA here in Berkeley and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. The time is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for a stone's throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. Picture drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is June the 16th, 2015. If you have listened to the news today, I'm sure you heard that there has been a tragic accident here in Berkeley. Um, uh, apparently, six students have died and seven still remain in uh, dangerous situations. That is, uh, well, life-threatening situations, I guess. Uh, I think that... Uh, You know, those who were gravely injured, their families are just waiting to see what's going to happen. I uh, heard this, I think, oh golly, um, in the middle of the night, I don't sleep much these days, and uh, I tried to get it all straight, and I kept thinking, you know, probably shouldn't discuss it because the facts always keep changing up to the last minute. There's a press conference coming up this afternoon. all the facts, I'm sure, will be sorted. Uh, seems there was a party on the fourth floor, big building, and the students there uh, were out on a balcony. Balcony collapsed and fell down to the third floor. It's four stories up. Anyway, yes, this happened sometime between midnight and 1 a.m. this morning. And the students who died, most of the students are... Irish, Irish nationals, and apparently their families, of course, are, well, I guess they're trying to cope with this. Uh, It must be terrible to be across the Atlantic when your children have perished. I I kept thinking, three o'clock this morning, I just kept wishing that our longtime Irish programmer, Padraigine McGillicuddy, were still alive, still here at the station, she would know what what to say. She might know what words would be right. I don't know. It may be too early for words. Uh, uh, a listener once called Padraigine McGillicuddy our Irish harp. Uh, she went home to Ireland 
before she died, but Padre Guim lost her only son when he was in his 20s. Uh, I just can't begin to imagine what the parents of these students are going through. Both my sons are in their 50s. It's just amazing. I, I'll never know what it means to lose a young child. I, I, as I say, it seems too soon for words for mourning. Uh, the historic Irish response to sudden death is just called keening. Uh, I, I tried to do it once in an Irish play, um, Juno and the Paycock. Right. Uh, I, I don't know what today's <clears throat> customs are, probably. Probably much the same as ours. Anyway, I, I reached up on my shelf for some poems, and of course I found uh, William Butler Yeats. <clears throat> now, Yeats wrote so much about loss and sorrow, uh, especially in his old age, but, uh, you know, an old man's grief, it's for a different kind of suffering, the suffering that comes late in life. Uh, there's a few things by Joseph Campbell, rather prosaic. Uh, uh, eternally optimistic, that guy. Uh, it's not much use, all of those those sentiments to those of us who uh, who find that there's not really anything, anything appropriate to say. Uh, those who will never be old enough to feel that kind of sorrow, the grief and unhappiness of old age. Uh, we are the lucky ones. We get to grow old and wring our hands. I suppose uh, we are supposed to talk about the comforts that are uh, for the living. I looked around for eulogies. I have shelves of eulogies, and I couldn't find anything that seemed to be uh, the right thing, I thought of the the death of Diana Spencer. There were eulogies given there, her brother and her sister. Now, you remember uh, the people's princess, the late Diana Spencer. Uh, she died so suddenly with a shock. And I remember uh, her brother spoke, well, he spoke to her achievements he was very powerful, but her sister seemed to find, uh, I would call it kind of just the right, the right words, a kind of loving lyricism. It made uh, Diana's life seem transcendent. It was a little hard for me uh, to see Diana as a uh, tragic figure, but it got through to me, it got through to me before... It was all over. Uh, the nature of sudden death, you know, is to be not just shocking. Uh, it's harsh. It uh, seems unnecessarily cruel. Uh, it always just makes me feel uh, so frail, the frailty of human life. You know, every moment is dangerous, hanging by a thread. Um, let me just read a couple familiar lines, not because they are appropriate, but just because they're Irish. Uh, I guess William Butler Yeats is the poet for 
for all seasons. He, he writes about the first season, Childhood, just a few lines by Yeats. Come away, O oh human child, to the waters and the wild, with a fairy hand in hand. For the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. And I guess, how about the most famous lines from Yeats? You know, he wrote the lines about his utopian island, that place where eternity sleeps. It is a place in the heart, in the mind. Uh, it was my father's mantra. I'm only half Irish, the worst half anyway. Uh, William Butler Yeats wrote uh, the poem, The Lake Isle of Innisfree. I will arise and go now and go to Innisfree. And a small cabin build there, a hive for the honey bee, and live alone in the bee loud glade, and I shall find some peace there. For peace comes dropping slow, dropping from the veils of the morning to where the cricket sings. There midnights all a glimmer and noon a purple glow, and evening full of linnets' wings. I will arise and go now, for always, night and day, I hear lake water lapping with low sounds on the shore, while I stand on the roadway or on the pavement's gray. I hear it in the deep heart's core. I have always loved that poem. I learned it at home. I'm afraid when I went to school, <laughs> my school teacher used to teach the Lake Isle of Innisfree right alongside that, that other poem. You know, the one by Robert Frost, the one about uh, building a house by the side of the road and being a friend to man. Uh, I don't know, maybe that's the difference between uh, down-home American thinking and uh, Irish dreams, uh, Celtic twilight. I went through my books on Celtic magic, and I uh, I got carried away, and I, I thought I'd save it. Maybe I can do it next week or another day, because uh, it's just a little bit, it's just a, a little bit too... Uh, Let's just say it's, it's a little bit, not maudlin, it's just a little bit too heartbreaking to read today. Uh, I had planned today to read all kinds of stuff to you about politics, mostly about uh, women in politics, uh, things that I wrote and that other people wrote. <laughs> and I, I went through Geraldine Ferraro and I went through... Um, most of Hillary's stuff, and I've got here an article on Barney Frank, and would you believe a piece on Rosalind Carter? I I think I might I might give Rosalind Carter a spin. That's something completely different. 
I was going to read something funny, but I think Rosalind is my favorite, what do you call that, uh, straight woman. Yes, she, she's a straight woman. She certainly, she certainly stood Jimmy in good stead. Uh, before I forget, just let me tell you about the Barney Frank article. It's an old, old one. I put it away because I knew he was going to come up with his uh, run for president. This is an old article in the New Yorker dated January 12th, 2009. And this is just, I'm sure you can look it up online. And I just wanted to run it by you uh, when I do politics because I heard him in an interview recently. And he said that he did not... Uh, come out as a gay congressman in order to get publicity and to cash in on the fashion, uh, gay movement fashion, yes. He said that he had no choice in the matter. He said he always waited until uh, he had no other choice. And the the closet uh, was what he said, uh, uh, the most practical place to be. At some point, they were going to uh, out him. I don't, I just don't like that expression. Anyway, uh, he, let's see, when was that that he did it? He, he did come out, uh, in 1987, Barney Frank decided to reveal that he was gay, yes. First member of Congress to do so voluntarily. You see, they were threatening to make these lurid invest accusations, actually. There was an investigation, and the House Ethics Committee uh, did <laughs> make a fuss, but they failed to substantiate any of the charges. I um, think I remember, yes, he had... Uh, <laughs> He had a friend's parking tickets waived. Yeah, that's that's very heavy duty, yes. Anyway, uh, the thing I, I like best about Barney Frank was his passionate opposition to the uh, impeachment proceedings back in 1998. Uh, he definitely was a wit. He uh, made me think about how, how uh, clever... The politicians are over on the other side of the pond, you know, in Parliament. Our, oh gosh, our congressmen, for the most part, there are exceptions, of course, are such heavy dudes, such grim fellas. Uh, anyway, we mentioned two other books about Barney. Uh, mm -hmm. Say, uh, collection... Of his quotations, published back in 2006, Frank Talk, The Wit and Wisdom of Barney Frank. And then there was something. Oh, Let's Get Frank. There's a documentary film, yes. Let's Get Frank, directed by Bart Everly. That's a fun one. I think we'll be seeing a lot more of Barney Frank. I think he's the, the best, one of the best things that's happening during this election. I... I'm so pleased that we have someone who is, uh, I guess the word is charming, someone to listen to. He's 74 years old. I'm trying to remember how old Hillary Clinton is. They're about the same age. Anyway, this is piece I brought today is all about the steel magnolia because 
<laughs> I think Rosalind Carter is just about the most down-to-earth first lady we ever had. She was not a uh, uh, pompous matron like, uh, oh, let's say, uh, Eisenhower's wife, Mamie. <laughs> Harry Truman's wife was, was a tank. But anyway, uh, when the... Um, uh, when the four-year term of, of um, uh, Jimmy Carter was over, Rosalind sat down and wrote a little book called First Lady from Plains. I reviewed it for the Chronicle, and I guess I called it Steel Magnolia Tells All. And I think uh, what struck me was that even, even in the case of Rosalind Carter... I couldn't seem to get my review published in its entirety. There were these little uh, little cuts. The editors deleted some of the political projections of Rosalind. Can you imagine Rosalind Carter being radical? Anyway, I I uh, I thought it would be fun. I put it in a book of mine because I just loved the idea that somebody somewhere was going to. Uh, edit, not me, not me, but some of the things that Rosalind said. Uh, the only other time I can, oh uh, yes, movie called Missing. It's all about the, um, mm, you know, the coup down in Chile, uh, Allende. And I remember I, I reviewed the movie Missing, you know, Sissy Spacek and, uh, Jack Lemon. And, uh, oh, that white horse and, all those tragic events. and <clears throat> Anyway, uh, the U.S. State Department uh, was, well, they had a hand in it, let's say. I'm not going to say anything more than that, but obviously there was plenty of evidence and um, uh, Kissinger and the rest of them uh, set it all up. I don't know why. Oh, I remember the editor at that time on the, the little local paper, the Berkeley Monthly. She said I was doing my ranting, my political <laughs> ranting. Anyway, uh, let me tell you a little bit about Rosalind Carter's book, First Lady from Plains, a uh, long time ago, published 1984. Uh, I, I, I'm sure I still have it on the shelf right next to Al Gore's book, uh, his first book, 1992 book called Earth in the Balance. Uh, I'm so grateful that these politicians have taken to writing books. Anyway, uh, I reviewed the book, uh, Rosen Carter's book, saying that she was much too much the politician to really spill the beans. But... Uh, she, uh, she tells us some of the personal stuff and actually she does avoid some of the bloodier issues. She confesses that Jimmy kissed her on their first date and she was 17 then, he was 20. As a girl in Plains, Georgia, she churned butter and helped her mom take in sewing. Privy was outdoors. In the White House, she wore long underwear during the energy crisis when the heat was turned down. Uh, on Inauguration Day, she worried about her hair. <clears throat> I like her autobiography because it's full of 
all those little details. Uh, I wish she had told us more of the backstage stories, the political pressures of the time. Uh, she, she wrote that in the Lincoln bedroom, the, the bed uh, is too hard and the mattress on the queen's bed, she said, is too soft. So she didn't change them. She said she thought it might make people think. Anyway, she was born Eleanor Rosalind Smith in 1927. Let's see. That means she's six years older than I am. That makes her 87. Oh, my gosh. I, I'm sure she's still with us. Of course she is. 87. Anyway, Rosalind Carter is not a rollback to uh, Eleanor. Yes, her name is Eleanor Rosalind Smith. But uh, <laughs> she certainly gives it her best shot trying to be another Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, both those first ladies had great difficulty with public speaking. <clears throat> they uh, were the only first ladies on record to testify before Congress until Hillary... Hillary was pilloried by those congressmen. You remember Monica. Oh, oh, I hope we don't have to go back to Monica at any point. No, no, no. <clears throat> Eleanor Roosevelt uh, spoke to the Congress uh, on behalf of the coal miners. Mrs. Carter went to speak on behalf of the mentally ill. Both uh, those women, those first ladies learned how to travel and campaign on their own. Rosalind writes, quote, If I go with Jimmy, well, I just sit there. Now, Eleanor Roosevelt was born to old money privilege, and Rosalind Carter came from uh, farmers in Plains. Uh, yes, the privy was outdoors. Yes, she says her first memory is the red dust of Georgia. Both women share that Christian conscience once thought to be the spine of public servants. <laughs> yes, I remember, I'm so old, I remember when the word Christian was more of an adjective. It used to mean compassionate, kind, uh, loving, thoughtful, you know. Uh, it was a Christian gesture, you know. Anyway, <clears throat> in the wake of Watergate, it was uh, obvious that the Carters were, uh, oh, let's call it, uh, people of conscience. Now, after that, of course, we had that uh, that servant problem. Public servants is not the way the Reagans seemed to, <laughs> seemed to feel. They, well, they were irritated by the concept. Of, uh, they, uh, they took kind of a nouveau riche approach to power, it behaved like parvenu who thinks that, you know, power and money gives them, uh, what is that, uh, gives them clout. Now, it's refreshing to read Rosalind Carter, someone who seems to take her civics lessons seriously. A public servant is someone who serves the people, not a society matron at the top of the First of the 400, you remember Mrs. Reagan, Nancy. She always wore Reagan red and, you know, 
all the um, decor. <laughs> well, Laura Bush, I won't get into Laura Bush. No, 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 no. That is a curious story. Uh, and Barbara Bush, well, <laughs> that was a piece of work. Uh, both the wife and the mother of uh, United States presidents. Uh, looking at Eleanor and Rosalind, it's interesting to compare. They both suffered early loss, said to be something that uh, causes people to become responsible and thoughtful. Eleanor adored her alcoholic father. He died when she was young, and all of that was under a cloud. Uh, his mother was a stern character. <laughs> yes, just thinking of all the women in that Roosevelt clan. Uh, Rosalind, on the other hand, Rosalind blamed her own bad thoughts, quote, bad thoughts, for her father's early death. She was 14. Now, her subsequent struggle to do the right thing all her life has given her this public image which, uh, like Mrs. Roosevelt's, is a little perhaps too virtuous for some tastes. Uh, uh, Nancy Reagan's greed and uh, vulgarity, let's face it. <laughs> yes, Time magazine said the rich are always with her. That was certainly the uh, the song of the 1980s, although uh, uh, it seems to be we're swinging back in another direction, back and forth and back and forth. Uh, I guess once again the masses are sick of hypocrisy and downright unkindness. Uh, what I read these days is that the Republicans have decided to be kind Obviously, they're not going to be kind to each other. I think there's something like 17 candidates running for president. Anyway, Rosalind expresses irritation uh, with Jimmy. She said he'd rather be right than president. That's what happened in the 1980 election. Uh, uh, she said, she said, well... Jimmy could have blown up Tehran and been re-elected. You remember when the Shah of Iran had to leave the country, his country. Uh, he was ill, he had cancer, and he was allowed or invited to come here to the United States. Rosalind confesses she wishes they had never let that happen. Uh, she seemed very pragmatic to me uh, and quite bitter about that. 1980 election. Uh, uh, I put that next to Al Gore's uh, 2000 tragedy. Anyway, the section of the book that really stays with me over time is the portrait of Jimmy Carter's mother, Lillian Carter. Now, Rosalind's father... Uh, was dying. His last illness uh, was a long one, and Lillian Carter cared for uh, Rosalind's father until he died. Uh, while she was working as a nurse, a young woman, she stepped across the racial barriers in an era when that involved risk. Georgia, we're talking here. Uh, 
During Carter's term in office, <clears throat> Miss Lillian went to India with the Peace Corps. She lost a great deal of weight. When she returned, she said she had a lot of trouble getting back into the habit of eating. Next week, I want to talk about Jimmy Carter's mother, and maybe maybe we can contrast uh, Lillian Carter with Virginia uh, Clinton, Bill Clinton's mother. Always look to the mother, folks, and you'll get a clue. <laughs> This has been Jennifer Stone. Till next week at the same time, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Ones who walk in light, light 'em up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is L. Joy Williams. Pacifica's National Election Supervisor with an important message. This summer, we will hold separate but simultaneous listener and staff elections for half the seats on the local station board. Candidate nominations will open on June 15th. To see the election calendar, sign up for election updates, and learn how to get involved, please visit elections.pacifica.org or call me, the National Election Supervisor, at 347 Six nine nine two nine one four. You can also send me an email at nes at pacifica dot org. Your voice and your vote in Pacifica are important. Remember, you must be a member of the station by July fourteenth in order to participate in the election. So don't delay. Renew or join today. And you are listening to ninety four point 